Hey, welcome to Awakening. Good to be with you. Man, a joy just to get to worship with you, get to pray, get to, get to stop kind of pretending to do church, but actually be the church and be the family of God together. We're closing out this series, Dreaming Wide Awake. Um, and as we close tonight, it reminded me of a good friend. In fact, uh, what I'd consider one of the few best friends I've ever had. I've known him ever since fourth grade, and we'll call him John for sake of keeping his identity his. John and I knew each other and best friends and grew up in grade school and then high school. We both really started walking with God around the same time. We, uh, both kind of grew up with knowing God, but really started walking with him in high school and getting it. And uh, Then we ended up going to Bible college together, being roommates. I mean, we've gone through so much together. Uh, had these dreams together of changing the world and doing ministry and what God might want to do in and, in and through us. I really remember just grad- graduation day, like the, I don't know, maybe some of you are there, or you, you wasn't too far off, or if you remember like graduating, like the, the possibilities were in front of you, and it's a little daunting, but it's also exciting, and then we both met girls, and we both fell in love, and got married, and you, you know, you have all these beginnings that you just feel like, oh man, this is, and dreams that come with these beginnings, and we had these beginnings and dreams, and then something happened where we lost track of each other. I moved to Atlanta. He moved back to uh, Santa Cruz, where we're from. And for about four or five years, we kept in kind of contact. And then I found out via Facebook that his marriage fell apart. And he went silent. Here's one of my best friends probably in the whole world. And I found out, perusing Facebook, that his entire marriage fell apart and he got divorced. And here's this guy with immense amount of just gift and never used it in ministry and for God. And he, in fact, he just entered a, such a dark time and downward spiral that that he actually uh, just cut off all communication from me and from his family uh, is for about two years and didn't even know where he was, couldn't get a hold of him, search for him and pray for him often. That's interesting. We, we put so much focus and attention on the beginnings, on the starting point of things, and yet isn't it a bigger deal how we finish, not necessarily how we begin? All the beginnings have these dreams and these ideas and these, but it's not so much how you begin, is it? It's really how you finish. And then if you begin to look out, and this is the question we want to ask tonight, is why, why is it that so many really good people with great intentions, with the best of intentions, great people, why is it they rarely finish well? Many of you will get married. I know this group we're talking to is not so much married, but are married. And There's all these dreams and all this preparation for the wedding day and all this work put into this one singular day and this possibility of life together forever. And then you read the statistics and you're like, well, it might work. You've got a 50-50 chance. And you realize it's not 
so much how you begin, but it's how you finish. And you start a job, and you start this job, and you have all these dreams and ideas of what you could do. And then why is it that we rarely finish well in relationships in life? Why is it that really good people this isn't bad people. This isn't people who just are out to do harm. This is great, great people. Have, have pure, noble intentions. Why is it they rarely, we rarely finish well? And then think about that for our church. Because if we actually talked about the beginning of awakening. We'd, we'd be pretty excited. I mean, just think about this. We're six months into this, and, and look around you. I mean, this is not a six-month-old church and what God's doing, and who would have thought at, at month four we'd not able, not only like be able to support what's going on here, but give away $25,000 over to Zimbabwe to build wells, and we're actively engaging here in the local community and doing stuff on this campus and, and giving money to different stuff. I mean, who would have thought, and we could, we could talk and tell stories about our beginning, but could it be that it's more important how we finish, and what maybe not year one, but year 10, year 20. See, tonight we want to talk about how to finish well, because we all have dreams, don't we? And, and as John and I sat there, was it over 10 years ago, with our dreams and these girls that we fell madly in love with, it wasn't the beginning point. But it's all about learning how to finish well. How to make the last day the best day. And if you got your Bibles, would you open them up to Nehemiah chapter 6? Because what's interesting, if you read the Bible at all, what you'll notice is there's not a whole lot of people in the Bible that finish well. We don't have a whole lot of great examples of how to end really, really well. But Nehemiah is one of them. And we've been in this series, Dreaming Wide Awake, embracing this God-sized vision for your life. And we've been charting through this, this ancient story about Nehemiah, who, who was a cupbearer in the province of, or the country of Persia. And let me just give you some backdrop, because he's one of these guys that not only started well, but he finished well as well. Uh, chapter one is really, we pick up the story there, is Nehemiah gets a broken heart. He hears bad news from his hometown that the people of God and the place of God is in ruins. And it breaks his heart that he can no longer stay where he's at. But he actually takes about three months and prays and plans and fast. Because, because he has just a broken heart over the things that break the heart of God. And as a community, we began to pray that prayer. Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. And then chapter two, it moves from not only a broken heart to, to then a bold obedience where, where God began to put convictions that this should not be the way it is and, and you need to risk your comfort, your security and step forward. And as cupbearer to the king, he had unusual access to the one man who had all authority. And yet to go before him and to ask and to come before him was to risk his own life. And he came to the point where it was worth risking his life than living in apathy and doing nothing. He couldn't live with himself if he just sat by and his own people left in ruins. And there was a bold obedience where he courageously asked and God showed up. And then chapter 
end of chapter two, three is this, this strategic action where God showed up, answered his prayers, and Nehemiah, the king made Nehemiah the, the governor of Jerusalem. He goes, he actually shows up to Jerusalem in town. He's the new governor. He's there for three days. Doesn't even tell anyone that his heart is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that the people of God might, might have protection and security and prosperity and that the place of God might be in honor once again. But he doesn't tell anyone and just actually late one night circles the wall to see all the damage and then begins to cast vision to these people that, that, that are, he's trying to say, would you dream with me? Would you imagine what God might want to do through us? And let me tell you what God's already done for us. And they get on board and chapter three is this strategic plan. You ever read those genealogies? And, and you ever go like, huh? You know, and then, and then we just want to skip them. But sometimes there's some really good parts in that. And chapter three is kind of like a genealogy a bit because it says, and the Levites were placed here and so-and-so family was here. And da, da, da. what it is, is this is brilliant. Nehemiah knew the condition of the wall and, and what we would be tempted with. And we see a project and we say, oh, there's a huge hole over there. Let's get as many people over here to fix that. What he did was brilliant. It was strategic. He said, guess what? I'm going to place you to build the wall where you're most passionate, in front of your house. You know where you're going to build the best wall? <laughs> the one that's in front of your house, and that's what he did. Chapter 3 is this strategic plan where he placed people where they're most passionate, but then chapter 4 happens, and, and there's the people of the land, the surrounding nations and tribes were exploiting the people of God, didn't like that they were now getting support and help, so then they experienced external opposition. Sanballat, Geshem, and others were, were joining in and saying, hey, guess what? You know what? We don't really like this, and so um, we're going to kill you. Like, oh, thank you very much. That's encouraging. Just <laughs> drop by and leave the flowers on the doorstep. You're going to what? Oh, kill us. I thought, no, I, I totally read that wrong. Um, and so they get the, these guys, external opposition against them. And so what Nehemiah does is brilliant. And this is a huge principle. Plans change, but your vision stays the same. Don't adjust your vision, adjust your plans. That's what he does. It wasn't like, well, now we got oppositions. People are going to kill us. Well, sorry, we had a good try. We made it three days. It was awesome. Thank you very much. You know, he stepped in and he said, guess what? Now, everybody needs to work with their weapon. You need to carry it with you. And, and we're going to post someone to stand guard, and you're going to rotate. We're not going to work as fast, but plans change. Vision stays the same. When you have a God-sized calling, you expect opposition. Adjust your plans, not the vision God has called you. Then chapter 5 happens. Chapter 5 is not external, but internal opposition. As they're building the walls, he notices that the nobles in the city are actually doing the same thing that uh, the enemies were doing and exploiting the people, putting them in slavery. And such an incredible principle came out of this. Never compromise your God-given values to accomplish a God-sized vision. Never compromise your God-given values, the things God has clearly told you to do to, to accomplish a God-sized vision. And there came a point where Nehemiah had to choose, do we rebuild the walls or do I address the corruption inside the walls? And he addressed the corruption inside the wall and says, guys, you cannot do this. You cannot put your own people to slavery. You cannot sell them off to others. This is not right. Because who cares if we build walls and, and inside is just junk? Internal opposition, Nehemiah says, you know what? I'm not going to sacrifice my values for the sake of the vision. It may cost us rebuilding these walls, but it's better that we address this. 
than to compromise anyway. Then chapter six, where we're at today. It's finishing well. It's been about 52 days since they started the building project. And, and they're right at the tail end. And, and what I want to do is, what you'll see in the text, is you'll see three areas, uh, three things that hold us back from really finishing well, and then some, some principles or some practices that'll help you and I to really finish well what God has called us, it really finish well in our marriages, to really finish well in our relationships, really finish well uh, with our neighbors and the dreams that God's put on our hearts, to really finish well with those friendships and those hard areas. Uh, Take a look here. The first thing that keeps us from finishing well is the valley of distractions. The valley of distractions. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1 says, When the word came to Sanballat, to Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, uh, the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not seen, uh, had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come. Let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And uh, just what you need to know about Ono. Ono is this village about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's actually kind of in neutral territory at the end uh, of of Judah's territory there. And and it's basically, you know, it kind of appears like a political gesture of peace. Hey, you guys finished the wall. Congratulations. Let's kind of be buddy buddies now since we tried to threaten and kill you. But they were... Scheming to harm me. Verse 3, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? And now listen, four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. See, the valley of distraction always wants to pull you from the best thing to lesser things, from from the great thing that you're doing to simply a good thing. Did you notice his response right there? He said, why I am carrying on a great project and can't go down. One translation says, I'm carrying on a great work. Let me ask you this. What's the great work that you're carrying on right now? What's the calling on your life? What's the great work that you're carrying right now that that gives you the ability to say no to lesser things? See, in the valley of distractions, here's what you must know. You you must and I must. uh, In the valley of distractions, um, we must confront, uh, yeah, 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 practice laser sharp focus. In the valley of distractions, you and I, we must practice and live with laser-sharp, narrow, single-minded focus. You know the difference between a flashlight and a laser? Anyone? I asked this last service, and someone gave me the real technical response. It was like, oh, that's right, we live in engineer, you know, capital of the world. I was giving the layman's answer. Hmm. Well, the difference, well, yeah, one point, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's lots of differences, obviously. <laughs> the difference is focus. One, one can spread light, but if you focus it, impact, one can cut through steel. 
See, when you go down into the valley of distractions, you actually diffuse your impact. When you're clear on what the great calling of your life is, you have focus, live with intentionality. How you practice this, embrace the discipline of saying no. Embrace the discipline of saying no. In fact, try that. Some of you have such a hard time saying no. I just thought we might try it tonight, you know, together, you know, and just say it out loud. And you're like, I've never had that go out my mouth before. <laughs> wow, whoa, how freeing. You try it, ready? The word is no, N-O. Uh, you ready? One, two, three, can you say it? No. That was okay, that was okay. One person actually believed it back there. <laughs> say, say it like you believe it, like you mean it, like you're, you're actually gonna say no to something, like no, one, two, three, you ready? That's better, that's better, that's better. (laughs) Embrace the discipline of saying no. See, see, here's what happens is when you get close to the finish line, isn't it interesting? The reason we drift into the valley of distractions at close to the finish line is you're like, I'm almost done, right? I'm almost there, why not? I mean, Nehemiah, everything's pretty much wrapped up. He could have went and glowed and said, hey, guys, look what I've done. He said, no, 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 I have a laser focus, single-minded devotion because this is what I'm called to. I'm not called to be over here. And, and sometimes we go into the valley distractions because it's just repetition. Other people are, keep coming at us, keep asking us the same thing over and over. And you're like, well, I have to say yes. They've asked me like three times. They came four times. He said what? No. no. <laughs> you got it. Good. I'm glad. Someone, thank you, thank you. I love what Howard Hendricks says on this. The secret of concentration is elimination. Let me ask you this question. What thing do you need to say no to this week for you to accomplish the great work God has called you to? Let me ask you this, maybe. might be not a thing. Who do you need to say no to this week so that you can carry on the great work God has called you to. Something we're doing as a community, um, I hope you're joining us, is Lent, and we're taking it in stages, actually, and this uh, stage is media fast, and it's just an intentional saying no to recalibrate our hearts to the things of God so we can actually be attentive to what is the great work God is carrying on. Now, here's kind of an obvious point, but maybe... Maybe we just need to hear it said out loud. I think everybody knows this, at least intuitively, but every yes is a no in disguise. You know that, right? I mean, we all know that. This isn't like rocket science. This isn't new. But every single yes you say to someone else is a no in disguise. Nehemiah even knew this. Check this out. Do you you know that Nehemiah knew that too? Four times they gave me that answer, and he said, I'm carrying on a great project. It cannot go down. And he realized if he said yes to that, he would have to say no to what? Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Every yes. So if you're not really good at saying no, realize that your yeses are no's to something that is maybe more significant than you're saying to. Right? Every yes. And we love to be yesers. Is a no in disguise. Some of the distractions we have is busyness, choosing the lesser, trying to meet every need. You know, I have this vision for us as, a, as awakening. 
I have this dream for us as a community. We, we're going to unpack this in the next series, but what, what is our God-sized vision as a church? My God-sized vision for us is that, that every single person here would lead someone to Jesus this year. If, if we're really going to be about awakening this generation to a new life, then we got to see new life. we got to put our money where our mouth is and say, guess what? Wouldn't it be amazing that, that this little church, and there's about 300 of us in the two services that attend here, that we saw 300 new people this next year come to Christ because we said, you know what? We're going to live with laser-sharp focus. We're not going to go down into the valley of distractions. We're going to live with single-minded devotion. Thank you, one of you. Amen. See, but you know what would keep us, the valley distractions for us as a church, is our pursuit of more. Our pursuit of trying to be something we're not instead of loving people. The first thing that will keep us from finishing well is the valley distractions. The second is the pit of discouragement. The pit of discouragement. Verse 5. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. Now, you understand, letters in that time actually worked similar to the way they work uh, today, except they didn't have the post office that was billions of dollars in debt. But if you got an envelope that was open, you knew that someone or many people had seen it. And today and back then, what he knew is he received this letter, the contents of which had already been circulated before it had gotten to him. And so he knows whatever is in this letter has been shared a wide as the messenger had brought it to him. That it was just open for everyone to see and it had been kind of circulated around. Here's what it said. It is reported among the nations. And Geshem says it's true. Oh, well, I guess that means it's true. Geshem says it's true. <laughs> Thank you very much. That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make the proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Like, well, you even wrote that in there. Good, good job, guys. Uh, now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. Yeah, this is the epitome of a character assassination, slander. They're really trying to manipulate him into meeting up and calling him out on things that he didn't do. I love this. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. <laughs> he doesn't get into the nitty-gritty, doesn't have to defend, doesn't have to go to all the people that the letter went to. He just said, guess what, guys? Just making it up. I'm not even going to go there. And then he gives the commentary, verse 9. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking that our hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. In fact, that, that word, uh, phrase, hands will get too weak, is a Hebrew idiom. What it means is as you work that your hands literally fall to the side. And, and, and that you just can't move on. You ever had that where you're in the middle of a project and you just get discouraged and, and, you just, and all of a sudden your just hands or your soul or your heart just falls to the side and you just go slack and numb. And you're like, I just can't move forward. And that's what criticism does. That's, that's what when people are against us and we get discouraged and it's a hard thing that all of a sudden it just, you're like, I just can't do it anymore. And sometimes it doesn't even make sense and it's just a wave of discouragement hits you and your hands just fall to your side. And I love how, what happened next. He said, that's what the goal was. But then I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. See, in the pit of discouragement, 
you have this command, take heart. When in the pit of discouragement, when you find yourself being discouraged, take heart. Simply simply take heart. Well, it's interesting because when you're discouraged, the temptation is to what? Lose heart, right? You lose heart. And and, and yet Jesus in, uh, where was it? It was... uh, John 16 has this, this amazing phrase. He says this, in this world, you'll have trouble. Like, thanks for the encouragement, Jesus. Good so far. But what? Anyone? Take heart, for I have overcome the world. In this world, you'll have trouble. It's going to be hard. I'm not going to mess with you there. But Take heart, command, literally command your heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. What's interesting about discouragement is discouragement's a lot like quicksand. The longer you stay there, the deeper you sink. And so how do you take heart? Let me give you a couple ways from the text of how to take heart, especially with criticism or people who are, feel like out to get you, negative Debbie Downers. It says, address criticism head on and then move on. Don't dwell. Address criticism head on. Do you notice what Nehemiah did? He, he didn't dive into it. He didn't really wrestle with it that long. He just addressed it simply, plainly, with what? The truth. Psalm 15.3 says this, uh, talking about the man who, or woman who dwells on God's holy mountain. It says, he who speaks truth in his heart. Some of you need to speak truth to your heart that you've been believing lies that others have said to you. You're discouraged and address criticism, even your own self-critique with the truth of God's word. Do not dwell. Because that's what we want to do when we're discouraged, isn't it? We want to throw ourselves a pity party. We want to just go, this is so hard. It's, it's, It's not fair. And we just kind of want to stay there. In fact, when you're discouraged, you have to do something that feels really counterintuitive. Rather than avoid, and what we want to do, even with criticism, is we, we, we want to tell everyone else, don't we? we? We want a bunch of, like, Debbie Downers with us because other discouraged people want other people to be in the same state as them. And so we just want people to go, oh. You notice what Nehemiah did? He ended the same way he began. Go to God. It's counterintuitive. Don't go to others. If your first response is horizontal, now you need to talk to people. You just may want to check and say, go to God. Simple, quick prayer need. Now strengthen, not our hands. Did you notice it wasn't our hands? It, it was one of those where it, they were getting to him. Strengthen my hands, God. I feel like they're about to go slack. I feel like it, if, if it keeps up, if without your help, I don't know if I can keep going on. Go to God. It's counterintuitive because we want to go to everyone else. We'd rather dwell and play it over and over in our mind. And we'd rather tell. He says, no, 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 address and go to God. That's how you take heart. Speak truth to your heart. Command your soul. And then simply go to him specifically. You know, what's interesting, though, is it's not for us, oftentimes, people that are really out to get us, that really discourage us, especially when dreaming wide awake, is it? 
I don't know if we have a whole lot of enemies that are, that are trying to kill us. You may, I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but a lot of times what it is, is people with the slip of a tongue and they say something and it just is like a dart here, isn't it? And, it? and if you don't address it, you, you may begin to assume things about the relationship that aren't even true or about them and they didn't even mean, but because we never addressed it, it just, it hit us right there. I, I mean, I, I do this quite frequently. I can hear 10, well, let me give you an example. This just happened here. My wife, walking out, and, and this is how we deal with things in our mind. This is just, or at least it's, uh, you, you can understand how screwed up I am. <laughs> My wife's walking back after the first service, and she's like, you know Great job, honey. That, that was one of the best messages I've, I've heard you teach here since. So you know how I heard it? And she's given me a compliment, by the way. <laughs> what was wrong with the other ones? <laughs> I mean, how screwed up is that? And I caught myself because I wanted to go down and like analyze all these other ones. And I wanted to dwell on that. I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I been doing that's been so wrong that this one was good? <laughs> But we do that, don't we? See, when dreaming wide awake, sometimes the, the people that speak the most discouraging words are your closest friends, family members. When you begin to first utter that idea, that dream, and they go, really? Or, don't waste your life, honey. G- get a real job. You could never do that. Or, you know, that whole God thing. I know you're really passionate about it, but, but, but focus on your career more than making a difference. In the pit of discouragement, the practice is take heart. The third thing to keep us from finishing well is the fog of deception. The fog of deception. You ever been in fog that's really thick? where you really had to slow down, or I've been in it where I should have stopped. <laughs> and you don't know, I mean, it gets so thick, you're not really sure which direction is the correct direction. You begin to drive by Braille because that's the only way you can drive and you hope no one's in front of you. And thick fog is, works that way, right? I mean, you don't know which way is the right way. You don't know which way is up. Well, maybe you do because there's the ground underneath you. But you lose your bearings. You don't know what the correct course, and deception works much that way, like a fog. Verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabbel. Now, I, I got to tell you, I worked all week on that, by the way. <laughs> just wanted to let you know, my wife said I should probably just read it quickly underneath my breath, and she might have been right. He was shut in at his home. Now, let me tell you about Shemaiah. Shemaiah was a prophet and a priest, well-known in the town. So, so as he comes over, this is a notable, reputable guy. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. Oh, wow. By night, they're coming to kill you. And you notice it has that kind of rhythmic to it. it is actually spoken in oracle or prophetic that, is, that, that this man has a word from God for Nehemiah that he needs to listen to. Verse 11, but I said, should a man like me run away? 
Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized, I discerned, I had this uh, perception. I perceived that God had not sent them, but they had pro- that they had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. And then you see yet another prayer. Remember to buy and Sambalot, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate you. See, when in the fog of deception, you must exercise discernment. You must exercise discernment. I see this as an incredible tool that we do not use today much. We buy into everything. If it sounds good, then it must be good. Things like this. Well, you're supposed to have a happy life. Well, Newswave, that's not God's goal for your life, by the way. God's goal is that you would be holy as he is holy. Happiness is the bipod. We buy into bad advice like, well, I just need to put me first. I, I need to get what's mine. Oh, that sounds good. Until you think about what God said, well, have no other gods before me. And, and, and then, then you go to the New Testament. It's like, you know what? He who tries to gain his own life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it and like oh boy that's a little bit counterintuitive but we buy into these things because it sounds good or you know it's no big deal that's just the way you do business it's just this area oh that sounds good see in the fog of deception you must exercise discernment let me give you a few questions to help you exercise discernment come straight from the text here the first question is does it contradict God's revealed will does it contradict God's revealed will? If you see in your Bible there, it says inside the temple. In fact, that word for the temple is really uh, the word for the innermost of the temple or the holy of holies. Uh, th- that was the place that only the high priest was to go into on the day of atonement. And so no other person was to enter. In fact, if he did, you would be under God's judgment. And one king at, earlier did, and he was struck with leprosy. It was a sin for him to do that. It's like, well, clearly, I cannot do that. See, exercise discernment is is not actually as hard as you think. It's like, you know what? God's revealed a lot, and and does it contradict his will? Well, if it does, well, then I shouldn't do that, even if it sounds good. Let's just take this one. This might touch a little. Well, we should move in together because it will save us money. Okay. Well, you know what? It talks about keeping the marriage bed holy. Let alone the stats that if you cohabitate, the likelihood of your divorce like more than doubles. Aye. Okay, well, that's secular study, but then God already said it like thousands of years before that. But you just go, does it contradict God's revealed will? Will I have to compromise my God-given value? The second question is, is this a fear-based or faith-based decision? Am I making this because I'm afraid of what might happen, or am I making this because I'm confident in who my God is? 
Is this a fear-based decision where, where I don't know? Did you see that in the text? They're trying to make me afraid. They're coming to kill you. Run in here. I, I'm afraid, so I'm going to decide. Or is it a confidence in who your God is and said he is? Third question. Who is the focus of the decision? Every major decision asks this question. Who is the focus of the decision? God or man? Is, it, is this ultimately about me, my safety? Is it, is it about numero uno here or is it about God? Number four. Am I doing this because it's a God conviction or simply human intuition? Am I doing this because it's a God conviction or just simply human intuition? You know, that's a huge one. Anytime anyone makes, where you're forced to make a big decision on the fly, always stop. Don't make the decision. You'll get in more trouble making a decision in a hurry than you will not making a decision. It says, is this a God conviction? I have a conviction on this. Or is it simply man's intuition? He's been enticed by this guy. Hey, and in fact, this guy is actually calling... Uh, calling out an ancient pagan practice that where you would run into the temple, uh, whatever your God is, and hold the idol for safety. Well, that's human intuition. So the God conviction, my God can save me here. I don't have to violate what he's already said. You know how it's worked for us is, and this is important, especially if you're married, always move together in one. Any major decision, make it together. When Jen and I started to uh, figure out whether we were going to launch and be uh, launch Awakening Church, really, we had a lot of man's intuition. A lot of people said, "Oh, yeah, you should do this," or "Hey, about this." And the first time it came up, Steve Clifford brought it up. I said, "I don't want to do it." And it took another year or so. It took us a year, both my wife and I, to get onto the same page where we were both. It, this is a conviction of God. We must do it. See, but here's the reality. The Spirit of God will show you and tell you what, is, what you're supposed to do. I love what Isaiah says. He says, your ears will hear a word behind you. Whenever you turn to the right or left, this is the way walking it. If you begin to walk in the reality of God, I'm going to obey what you say. He says, I will show you. I mean, James 1, 2 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you don't know what to do, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. But when you ask, you should believe and not doubt. What that means, it says, God, if you show me, I'll do it. And he'll give you a conviction. See, in the fog of deception, you must exercise discernment. There's three things, three things that will keep us from finishing well. The valley of distraction, the pit of discouragement, in the fog of deception. Let me just summarize this. At the end of a God-sized vision, God gets all the glory. You know you finished well when they say how great your God is. 
Look at, look at how it ends here, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. In fact, archaeologists have found this wall. It's approximately about eight feet wide, and it is a very rough surface, clearly done in a hurry. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because Nehemiah was the most amazing leader they had ever seen. And the people were just studs. Oh, sorry, I missed, uh, stopped. Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. See, when dreaming wide awake, at the end of a God-sized vision, God gets all the glory. It's all about him. You know you finished well. When they look at your life, they look at how you've done life, and they say, You have an amazing God. It's not about you. It's all about him, his fame, his renown, his glory. You know what I love about God is that God is in the business of second chances and new beginnings. Now, I think that's one of the ways he gets great glory. I know it is, actually. See, John's story isn't over. John contacted me a few, oh, about a month and a half ago. Hadn't heard from him in two years. Been praying for him, didn't know what was going on. We met in a coffee shop in Los Gatos. And though all of life had fallen apart, and though in this area it, it didn't end well and didn't finish well, God is the God of second chances and new beginnings. And we sat over coffee and cried and prayed together, and just the joy of having my brother back done some of the hardest things in life, gone through the tough struggles with him and prayed and it's just so fun to have him back in my life. But then he sat across the table and shared where he was at now and what God was doing in his life and now he's married and has a baby and, and he's in a new beginning. What I want to say is I think there's some of us here that realize I'm in the place I didn't finish well. I didn't finish well in that relationship. I haven't finished well here. And so you feel stuck. And I just would say you have a God of second chances and new beginnings. John's story isn't over yet and it started anew. Your story isn't over yet. And it can start anew now. Because you have the God of second chances. And we want to take a season of where we take communion now as a community. And I invite you just simply to remember that is the whole point why Jesus came is for you and for I to have a relationship with him, to experience his loving grace which has no end. I love the verse. I believe it's in Colossians where it says uh, that he who began a good work in you, he who started it, he's the one that started, will be faithful. It's his faithfulness, not your faithfulness, to complete it until the day of redemption. And you may feel like you haven't finished well and you just need to lend, lean into his faithfulness. Go, God, I, I, here I'm, I'm broken. I need a new beginning with you. And I'm leaning into your faithfulness that you'll be faithful to complete it in me. And as we take communion, uh, if you're in that spot, would you just take it afresh? If you don't know Jesus, don't take communion. That's not, you, 
we'd love to invite you to come. You can come talk to myself or anyone else, and we'd love to talk to you and invite you to have a relationship with him. In fact, it's simple. You can do it in yourself. God, I just need you. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins that I might have a relationship with him. I believe in him. Put my trust in you. Save me. Come into my life. Make me new. And it's true. And he will. And go take communion. The way we do it is you just break the bread, dip it in the cup, and, and take it. It represents his body broken, his blood poured out for us that we might have a new beginning. I love it. Just a month ago, I get to be a part of the new beginning with John. I pray I get to be a part of the new beginnings with you as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we invite you to have your way in us. And ask that you would help us to finish well with you. That we would lean into your faithfulness and your love and your strength. Make us a church that awakens this generation by your grace. May we not get distracted by anything else. And we just say we love you and thank you for Jesus. His name. Amen.